Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk with one of the new members of the Detroit City Council, Gabriela Santiago Romero, who is just the second Latino elected to the city's legislative body. We're going to hear about her agenda for her first term and about the ever-evolving relationship between council and the mayor's office. Then we're going to talk with Antoine Garibaldi, the first lay president of the University of Detroit Mercy, as he prepares to retire. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WD. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There's a lot going on in the city of Detroit these days. Some headlines are good ones, like the more than $800 million that city government will get to spend under the American Rescue Plan Act. There's also all kinds of development and change in parts of town that uh, we've been waiting a long time to see, not just in downtown and midtown, but lots of neighborhoods are experiencing positive change as well. Still, there are tensions and issues. There's a committee looking into whether the city of Detroit can be part of the movement to provide reparations to African-Americans who were cheated for so many years of really basic human rights, of money, all kinds of things. And there's a talk, a little bit of talk, about things like universal basic income. Meanwhile, I think a lot of folks in the city are just waiting and waiting not with great anticipation for the inevitable big storms that we will get this summer and what they will do to our streets, to our basements, to our houses. Last summer was a tough one to get through. Against that backdrop, last fall, Detroiters went to the polls and elected a new council, a newer council than we've seen in many years. Lots of seats turned over. One of the people who was elected for the first time in that election is joining us now. Gabriela Santiago Romero is a city council member in her first term, and she serves Detroit's 6th district, which covers much of southwest Detroit. Uh, Her most recent resolution, which asks the mayor to redirect a portion of the ARPA funds to renovate Detroit Land Bank Authority houses and sell them to Detroiters, was passed unanimously by the council. It represents one of many proposals she believes she can offer to improve the outlook for the city and its residents. I'm really pleased to welcome Gabriela Santiago Romero to Detroit today. It is really great to have you here. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So uh, you've been on the council now for about six months. Uh, Let's talk first about what your agenda looks like for the time uh, that you're there and I guess just how you're adjusting. Uh, It's new for you and uh, I know there are lots of things that people encounter when they get to the council table that hmm, maybe they didn't anticipate. Sure. So uh, my agenda is large. Uh, There are a lot of things that I, I would like to do and there's a lot of things that Detroiters need. Um, but we're first trying to tackle housing. This is something that residents are calling in about every single week. Um, It is why I did put forth that resolution. Um, But quite frankly, we have a lot of things that we need to be improving. We need to be improving our transit system so that people are able to be mobile throughout the city um, and throughout the region. We need to make sure that, to your point, we have a solid infrastructure, that we're investing in our infrastructure because, because climate change is here. 
And I believe that, frankly, it will continue to only get worse until it gets better, um, until um, really our, our federal leaders and the corporations um, do something about um, how we're destroying our, our, our climate and our planet. Uh, I'm I'm the first queer woman to be elected to city council, so there are a lot of LGBTQ policies that we want to pass. Um, so there's a lot, but quite frankly, um, I will be very proud of myself if we are able to leave after my tenure. Um, addressing our basic needs, because not only do Detroiters love a new restaurant and a new coffee shop, um, we love when our garbage is picked up on time, when our streetlights work, when there are no sinkholes um, in our neighborhoods. So there's a lot of issues that we have to address. And as a long-term resident that, that loves the city, that has seen um, the city get better, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. So, um, as I was uh, saying, you represent Southwest Detroit. Uh, the, the district that you represent uh, covers uh, most of Southwest uh, Detroit and, and some other parts of the city as well. Um, that part of the city, of course, is, is I think, defined by uh, Latino culture in, in mm. many ways. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of town because of that. Um, mm. uh, but let's talk about... Uh, you being the second Latino uh, ever elected to mm-hmm. sit at the city council table. Uh, that's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, but I would also imagine it's a, it's a bit of a responsibility that you, that you carry as well. Uh, talk about what, what you bring uh, from that community and what that community needs from, uh, from the city council. Absolutely. I'm very proud to be the second Latina to be elected to city council. I'm the first Mexican immigrant um, to be on council. Mm -hmm. And as an immigrant, um, I understand the needs for us to have an ID that allows us to pick up, um, you know, pharmaceutical medicine that might be needed um, that is accepted at a bank um, so that you're able to open a bank account. the city of Detroit is um, in, in in a border state, um, which means that we have pretty heavy ice um, activity throughout. Um, and I know for myself, I actually never left my neighborhood growing up. I, I never left my block until I was about 18, 19 years old. And it was because of the fear of ice, um, especially when I was younger and when we were still undocumented. Um, so I, I know that there needs to be policies and best practices set in place where undocumented immigrants, where Latinx folks and their families are able to freely move around the city, access our resources and opportunities, and to to, to be a part of the city um, that we all love and that we all want to be, uh, be a part of. I mean, as you know, we open businesses, uh, we provide child care. Um, we are an integral part of our community, and, and we love that. Um, so I see my role as one that supports um, people being able to stay and feel cared for. Um, and just want to touch on the fact that uh, unless we we do that um they're they're gonna leave and unfortunately um due to gentrification due to basic needs not being met um not only you know and we all saw the census and in the population um decline i believe we're also losing population in southwest detroit and we're losing our latinx population to the suburbs um there was a a most recent article um talking about how lincoln park is the new southwest detroit and they're not completely wrong that's where my family lives now my 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 parents moved a lot of my family now lives in the suburbs Mm. um and it's because it's it's so much easier for them to open a business they're here there was a recent article that said it's about 75 steps to open a business in Detroit. And when I brought that up to the departments, they said, no, it's not 75, it's about 35, as if that's any better. Um, and quite frankly, I would like us to evaluate um, our, our, our process for opening businesses. I would like to evaluate um, how how difficult or easy it is for, for folks to be able to, to be here and, and to be a part of the, the city. Um, because if, if, it's, if it's not as easy or welcoming, um, people will go somewhere else where, where, where it is. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about some of the headline issues that are going on at uh, at the the city and at the city council. Um, As I said in the open, Detroit has a lot more cash than it normally would because Mm -hmm. of 
the $800 million influx of federal money from, from ARPA. There have been a lot of arguments, of course, about how to spend that money the best way we can. Uh, there are some, I think, reasonable restraints that have been exercised uh, on spending it on things that would require long-term investment. Of course, this is a one-time uh, injection of money, so you can't add structural cost uh, with it. Um, but but you recently had uh, a specific request uh, for how we should spend it uh, maybe differently than the uh, administration would like to. Um, the, the city council recently unanimously advanced a resolution you introduced that recommends the city use ARPA funds to renovate Detroit land bank authority houses and sell them to Detroiters. I want you to talk just a little about what your, what your thinking is there and how much federal funding you think maybe should or could be directed for this proposal. Yeah, so that resolution comes from a number of ideas that have been floated around. It's it's not originally mine. I mean, Council Member Calloway has said it herself multiple times. We have land-baked homes. Why can't we use those and, and provide them to Detroiters? We have our Skills for Life program that is hiring Detroiters to train them to to be able to, to, to have skilled trades. We have the skilled trades. Um, we have a wonderful state-of-the-art um, skilled trade center right now that is training Detroiters and, and, and Michiganders to to take these, these, these really great jobs. And and, um, and we have great community development organizations that can provide mortgage or loans to Detroiters if, if they want to purchase a home. So that resolution is, is one idea. Um, I think there are many ideas. Um, I don't know the answers, but I have the ideas and I have the, the team um, and, and the energy to, to find the solutions and to find the answers. Um, we're hoping to spend at least $100 million of our ARPA funding towards housing. I believe right now, at worst, we're spending about 7% of our ARPA money for housing. Mm. Um, in a city that needs housing, affordable housing, anywhere from 30 to 50% AMI, um, to me, it just seems like we have an opportunity to to to, to recalibrate some of that money and, and, and to think differently, think bold, um, and, 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 and really use the ARPA funding for what it is, an, an opportunity, an opportunity um, to to put forth big solutions, big ideas. Uh, so I am already coming across um, some some red tape, some politics, some issues. But we also are reaching out to our law department to see whether or not this resolution and these ideas are possible. Because to your points, ARPA funding is there. There are restrictions, um, but where our hope is that this is something that is viable. That's something that that we can spend ARPA funding on. Um, and if so, it's not next steps is talking to the departments, talking to partners, um, trying to make sure that we are capable of, of, of having this idea happen. And if not, um, what can we do? Uh, if anything, I, I hope that this that this resolution sparks more ideas um, that we can begin to 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 explore. Yeah. I'm talking with Detroit City Council member Gabriela Santiago Romero. Uh, she represents District 6 here in the city, which uh, is uh, uh, covers much of southwest Detroit and uh, some of uh, some of the center of the city as well. Uh, we're talking about what's going on in the city, what's going on on council, what's going on uh, with uh, the big issues here in Detroit right now. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think are the most pressing issues facing Detroit? Uh, what do you think the city should be doing, for instance, with this $800 million that comes from the ARPA uh, uh, injection from the federal government? Uh, how do you believe the city council should be voting for instance, on things like the tax abatement that's rest, re, been requested by uh, Dan Gilbert and Bill Bedrock for uh, the thing, the the building that they are erecting on the Hudson site. Uh, also, do you have questions for Councilwoman Santiago Romero? Um, if you live in Southwest, uh, this is your chance, uh, particularly to talk to. Uh, the person who represents you on the city council. Uh, but uh, if you live anywhere in the city, 
uh, give us a call and let us know what's on your mind. Let us know uh, what what things uh, you think the city council should be focused on right now. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there. Uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, I, I do want to talk uh, about um, I, I want to talk about infrastructure and ARPA and what's going on in your district with uh, with flooding and things like that. But before we do that, I do want to get your reaction to uh, this proposal to to give sixty million dollars in a tax abatement to Bedrock uh, as they build this new building on the Hudson's site, uh, you said you're going to vote uh, against it. So I would love to hear what your your issues are with, the, with that proposal. And is there anything that could change in that proposal that would uh, convince you to vote for it? Sure. So I, I feel the need to vote no on the tax abatements not because of this tax abatements, not because of Dan Gilbert's, um, but because of our whole tax system as a whole. Um, I I think that we need to revisit it from the top, the top down. In the state of Michigan, we need a graduated income tax where the riches are paying their fair share, um, which is not currently the case. Um, Detroiters pay very high taxes. Um, We pay very high insurance rates. We are now paying very high gas prices. Um, There are just so many things that Detroiters have to pay um, that we do pay um, that, quite frankly, it doesn't feel fair to me um, to have one of the most richest um, men of the state, um, not also paying it. And I understand that there is a lot of philanthropy, a lot of good, a a lot of giving, a lot of developments um, for the city, um, jobs, all these things that have been done um, by him, which I appreciate wholeheartedly. Um, But for me, it's not about a give and a take, Um, especially not when you're taking from a city that doesn't have anything to give. Um, Right now, we need all the resources that we can possibly muster. Um, We need to make sure that not only is our downtown solid, but the rest of our neighborhoods as well. And having something like the DDA, the Downtown Development Authority, capture taxes downtown and keep them downtown um, is something that I, I don't agree with um, something that I I need us to to revisit because if we're going to develop the city, if we're going to develop our downtown, and we are, and it's going to be beautiful and bring in all this money, um, what about our neighborhoods? What are we doing for our neighborhoods? What are we doing to to, to address those needs? And what are we doing to to lower taxes for for residents? What are we doing to to, to give them a tax break? Um, I think that we need to revisit again the the, the way that the state taxes, because quite frankly, if we had a graduated income tax, it would impact everyone across the state. All working poor, all working poor, all working class people. Um, If we had a dual tax or a split tax system, one that taxed land more than property, um, it would lower taxes for residents. For me, I think that this is an opportunity to revisit the whole system and and, and call it out for for not working for us. Um, And these tools um, that are being used um, are, are, are being used to develop a, a city, a, a part of the city that I believe has a lot of resources, um, a lot of tools already. Um, and if we're going to give you the, this tool, this this tax abatement, then it needs to address the needs that we have, which is we need affordable housing, mm-hmm. we need affordable uh, storefront space, we need affordable leases. Um, and and I think if if I was to support a tax abatement, I would need that commitment. And I know that um, council president has uh, sent out a statement asking for just that. Um, she's she, she's working together with. Um, at bedrock to see if, if if we could have some more essentially community benefits um for for this tax abatements because because we 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 need so much more than what we have now and it's a little difficult for me um to be able to say or to be able to to vote uh for a tax abatement for for a billionaire um when i know that our city needs so much more when i know that if if we all give the city all that we have um which which i do mm-hmm. i i 
I, I give the city all that I have without asking for anything back. Because um, I know that, quite frankly, um, by me developing my neighborhoods, developing the city, I, I benefit from that. I benefit from the streetlights being turned on. I benefit from, from the businesses that are being open. Um, and I would just hope that we're able to, to, to work on this together um, and really listen to residents and their needs. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's really important that what you said there and where you started there was with the idea that we need a much larger conversation about tax mm-hmm. policy, not just in the city, but 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 in the state. One of the really frustrating dynamics around these discussions is that they end up being arguments over one kind of project or subsidy. Uh, they, they, they are about the instant uh, issue, right? Uh, so now we're fighting about whether Dan Gilbert or Bedrock deserves this $60 million for this particular project, rather than talking about how we structure things like subsidies, how we, how we structure our taxes to make sure that the people who live here actually benefit from the things that happen, that, that, that when government spends money to, to make something happen or to make something easier, that the benefit for that goes primarily and directly to, to the people of, of the city. And, and there are so many ways uh, that things are structured so that they don't. Uh, the tax subsidy system, I think, is, is, is a really great example of it, but it's not the only one. And it seems that we never get to that point of saying, let's sit down and open up all of these things to a discussion about what kind of structure would make the most sense for the most people uh, in in the city, and and you're not the only person who 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 says that. But we never seem to get to the point where we get enough of our public officials together to 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 think it out in in those terms. For sure, I studied policies and um, social systems, and uh, in undergrad studied business. So I. I, I think if we, I, I think there is an opportunity to do it right. I, I think there is a way to create systems, have tools, have policies, have best practices um, that 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 uplift everyone, that include everyone, that support everybody. I think just um, to your point, we haven't had enough elected officials, we haven't had enough billionaires <laughs> be able to come together and say, hey, um, this 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 issue um, is structural, it's, it's, it's systemic, and we need to come together um, and use all of our lobbying power that, that we know billionaires have to, to push um, state legislators mm-hmm. to, to be able to make those changes. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Council Member Gabriela Santiago Romero, and we're going to start to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Richard in Detroit, you'll be up first. Uh, We've got several social media comments I'll add to the conversation as well. If you want to join, 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. Call and tell us what issues you would love to see the City Council focused on here in Detroit. Also, if you just have a question for the council member, uh, she's here to answer them. Uh, If you live in her district, which is District 6, much of the southwest side of the city, uh, this is your chance to ask her a question directly. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... 
Thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is Council Member Gabriela Santiago Romero of the Detroit City Council. She is one of the new members of the Detroit City Council, elected last November. She represents District 6, which makes up uh, much of the southwest side of the city. Uh, we're talking about the issues that the council is facing, the issues that uh, the city government is facing right now. Um, also, want to give people a chance just to ask the councilwoman some questions about uh, her tenure on the council, about what council is up to. Uh, we were just talking about the upcoming vote, at, I guess at some point, on the request from Bedrock for a $60 million 10-year property tax abatement on the four, the $400 million uh, 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 or actually it's, a, it's more than a billion dollars, the building that they're building um, downtown. Um, uh, there, there is a lot of debate about uh, those kind of subsidies and that subsidy in particular. What do you think about that idea. Should we continue to chase development and growth in the city through these kinds of subsidies, or should we be rethinking that approach and coming up with ways that uh, government money uh, directly benefits uh, the city and uh, the people who live in it. Uh, we would love to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there. Uh, let's start today with Richard in Detroit. Richard, what's on your mind? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Hi. Good show as always. You, you know, just a couple of points. I think one thing that's missed with these uh, tax abatement conversations is what they uh, typically review is the but-for test. As public policy experts will tell you that if you are going to give the a break, the tax break, you should do it if basically the development would not be built mm -hmm. but for the break, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, just don't give away free money just because. Well, obviously, as I understand it, the Red Rock owns the property already. It's a premier uh, area in this in the city downtown, that property is going to be developed. Um, now, will it be developed to the extent as the plans are currently, or some other scale? I think that's an open question. But uh, as far as it not being developed at all, I, I just don't think that a realistic uh, uh, a realistic outcome. Yeah. The other piece is these tax abatement contracts. You know, the question, Stephen, you hit it right on. What are we getting in exchange for this? six million dollars a year these tax abatement contracts need to be beefed up extensively to where the developers you're going to get a handout you're going to have to meet some measurable metrics and outcomes to determine what the communities are getting in return and enforceable so making sure that if the you know if a certain number of jobs aren't uh, provided or certain types of development or you know, basketball gym can't be used, or whatever the thing that is promised isn't actually happening, that there's some enforcement mechanism within the contract itself mm. to allow the city to the clawback or reduce the abatement going forward until the thing is met. I mean, yeah. th that's the sort of thing that we need to be doing if we're going to keep handing out money. Yeah. Uh, Richard, those are those are really great points, and, and especially that question of defining exactly what the city would get in return for those kind of subsidies is is really important. I mean, I, I you know, I, I understand as well as anybody the challenges uh, of developing in Detroit. And look, uh, you know, people don't develop for altruistic reasons. They do it in many cases, in most cases, so that they can make money. And it's harder to do that in Detroit for many reasons. Um, but but these subsidies that come from government really owe the people of the city um, something specific. I think uh, when, when when we do it, and and too often I think it's it's very hard to put our fingers on what we actually get uh, in return for those things. I mean, I do, I don't buy into the idea that uh, the job creation or the the overall economic growth. Uh, is is sufficient. It's not that those things don't uh, exist. It's that I don't think that they're worth the 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 for the foregoing of of important revenue. Uh, Councilwoman, I wonder what your reaction is to what Richard's talking about here. Yeah, Richard, I 
I, I hear you and I, I have similar questions and similar thoughts. And um, Stephen, to your point about the job creation, there's been a lot of research that shows that these abatements rarely ever meet all of the goals that, 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 that they set forth when it comes to hiring locally and hiring union and, um, and, 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 and meeting those, those goals are, are often not met. Um, and to what we get um, for the abatement or after the abatement, that's a question that, that we also have. And I know that member Johnson is asking, um, uh, we're asking our, the administration and, 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 our, and our law department to, to double check for us um, if companies that have received tax abatements in the city of Detroit actually pay the, the full taxes once the abatement is over. Because that's another fear that we have. What if you just continue to apply for abatement after abatement, um, uh, apply for a tax break after a tax break, and you never actually pay your, your, your full share? Um, that's, an an that's a question that we haven't gotten answered yet. Um, and, and that's something that, that we need to know is um, if, if how likely it is that someone will pay the full taxes once the abatement is over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard, again, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Mike in Northwest Detroit. Mike, what's on your mind? Hey, everybody. Uh, really appreciate this conversation. Um, I had a question for council member uh, uh, Romero, uh, Santiago Romero, about the split rate um, taxation for properties, for vacant properties. I was wondering what impact, if you guys have talked about how this would affect side lot owners, and especially like since there was a big push to get homeowners that had a side lot that like had been abandoned, neglected, all that kind of stuff to purchase it for a reduced rate, like 500 bucks or a thousand dollars. And what kind of impact since there likely will never be a structure built on that property again. Yeah. It's a great question, Mike. And it's come up a couple of times when we've been talking about this proposal for uh, split rate tax property tax in, in the city. Uh, Councilwoman, first let's, let's have you explain this whole split rate tax idea uh, to to our listeners and whether you support it, but but then also address Mike's question about people who who own side lots. I mean, there there are there are thousands and thousands of Detroiters who who do. I I'm one of them as well, uh, and so I think there are a lot of questions about that. Sure, this is a great question, and in the most simplest form, a split rate tax, as I mentioned, would tax property or it'll tax vacant um, vacant lot vacancies uh, vacant space more than um, more than space with properties or, or, or with um, spaces that have development on them the idea is that you will tax speculators more um, we have billionaires that have bought up a lot of property throughout the city that are just standing on the property that have not developed it at all and we have a lot of residents that still own their home um, that uh, pay a lot of taxes um, who who quite frankly should be paying less um, this is something that the city can't do it has to go through the state we are preempted from doing so um, so it needs to be a, a fight that um, um, they did the administration, council, needs to take to Lansing. Um, but that's a very interesting question about um, folks that, that may own side lots. I, I'm glad that you brought it up because now it's something that we can have front and center mm -hmm. when we're discussing this. Um, but frankly, I think that the the biggest impact that you'll see is, is on the speculators. It's on the speculators that might own 800 parcels of land, mm -hmm. um, as, as we know that some, some people do, um, who could be paying a lot more in taxes and who, frankly, if we change this tax system, would be encouraged to, to develop, to let go of that land, to, to, to let go of it to uh, a, a resident that might want to develop, um, that might want to build a home, might want to build um, a storefront um, on that property. So it's a good question. Um, I don't know the exact answer, but it's definitely something that we should be talking about um, now that you brought it up. Yeah. Um, but I think that it'll support us bringing taxes down for, for residents, um, homeowners, and and really um, push speculators to, to develop on, on the property that they're holding. Yeah. Uh, again, Mike, uh, thanks for the call and the really great question. Um, let's go next to Christopher in District 2. Christopher, what's on your mind? Um, hello. Uh, what's on my mind, just because of the prior conversation, uh -huh. is uh, how 
uh, my property at 160 West Golden Gate um, was taken uh, liberty by DTE uh, and without permission and cut the, my tree uh, that was like beyond the property line of the extended alley. Now, the reason why I called is a proposed resolution. And um, uh, the resolution is uh, taking those subsidy dollars and putting them in trust to create a trust-backed UBI system that gives trust to uh, firms, institutions, and households. Now, the uh, 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 institution that I have in mind uh, right now is in the District 6 where uh, my grandparents, home is and uh and reverend barlow's church where my grandmother uh mm. resided like my entire life and uh they have a million dollar uh, uh structure there that is sitting incompleted and it is my dream to actually do this for them because it is sustainable as well yeah yeah, Christopher. Uh, first of all, I, I, I ran into Christopher uh, yesterday in District Two, and he came up and introduced himself. He calls pretty frequently here on on the program, and is consistently talking about UBI as uh, as a, a policy imperative of his. It was really great to to put a face to the voice. Um, but I'm glad he called today too, because uh, th- this is a great question. Uh, for, for you, Councilwoman, uh, what about, again, this bigger picture conversation, if we could have it, might lead us to say, well, instead of putting money into these kind of subsidies, why don't we put money into something that would guarantee Detroiters' income uh, when, even if they're not able to get jobs or, or, or able to work? It, it, it really is uh, frustrating, I think, that we can never get to that point where we can even have that conversation. I agree. It's frustrating because it's possible. Um, Ann Arbor is using its ARPA money for a universal basic income program. Mm -hmm. Why can't we? Um, The state of California, I know it's California. I know it's, um, it's, 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 it's very progressive, but um, they provide their undocumented immigrants um, a lot of support, a, a lot of financial resources and that's because they know that's a large part of, of, of their workforce. <laughs> that's a large part of their community that, that helps make that state what it is. Um, I think it's frustrating that um, we are told or we are discouraged from having these conversations because I believe that all of these things are possible. It just It just takes leadership that wants to be bold, um, that wants to take a chance on Detroiters um, and, 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 and see how, how incredibly impactful this would be for our lives. I am someone that grew up in poverty. Um, I am someone that received resources and some people might call that a handout, but that allowed me to live my life with dignity. It allowed me to want to fight to, to serve um, my, my community. It allowed me to, to want to give my neighbors what I received. I, I would go to a local church and my mom would pay um, 10 or $15 to get a box full of food. Um, we weren't able to receive some Christmases toys, so my mom would go to Toys for Tots and we received boxes full of toys. Um, my mom was able to receive Wick to so that my so that my brother could eat. It's 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 those simple social structures and systems and and resources that um, for me are are, are not handouts. Um, they are what people need to help give them a leg up um, from this hole that we often feel like we are in when we are at our worst. Um, and quite frankly, it often leads to us being able to allow us to get to that next step. Um, it, it allowed my mom and, and my family um, a life of dignity that allowed us to focus on being able to go to school, mm-hmm. on being able to to go to work, on, on, on putting gas in the car um, that allowed my mom to be, um, you know, working catering and room service um, at, at like local hotels. Um, so for me, it, it's super frustrating to not be able to have these conversations because I have been positively impacted um, by those resources and believe that if we have more, um, we will only see a positive um, return. Mm. 
Okay, uh, Councilwoman Gabriela Santiago Romero, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks, thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we are going to talk with Dr. Antoine Garibaldi, who was the first lay president of the University of Detroit Mercy and is retiring. We're going to talk about why he feels like now is the time to leave and take a look back on his time in the position. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. On Friday, Dr. Antoine Garibaldi will end his tenure as president of the University of Detroit Mercy. He will return as a tenured professor in educational psychology after taking a sabbatical, but his impact on the university deserves a moment of reflection. He was both the first African-American president and the first lay president of the university, and he more than tripled the school's endowment since he came here in 2011. He was dedicated to increasing student enrollment numbers, particularly for first-generation college students, and he welcomed the largest freshman class in school history this academic year. With so many successes, we wanted to bring him on to talk about his experiences, his plans for the future, and share a couple maybe of his leadership lessons with you. Dr. Garibaldi, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So start with uh, what you're most proud of during your time at UDM. It's been 11 years. Uh, what 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 is the accomplishment that stands out in your mind? Well, I think the most important thing is that we are a much stronger institution, both financially and also with regard to academic reputation. I have to plug Councilwoman Gabriela Santiago Romero because she is a graduate of the University of Detroit Mercy and was an undergraduate when I was uh, just coming here in 2011. Um, We've been able to attract a lot of outstanding students uh, as a result of a lot of different initiatives that we have put in place, including our tuition recess, uh, reset our marketing and then our fundraising. But I think I'm most proud of uh, the community and civic engagement that really has expanded uh, here at the university. And you're aware of Lift Six Alliance and a number of other initiatives that uh, we have implemented with our now four campuses around the city, uh, three in the city, and then our new campus in Novi. So uh, it's really been a combination of, of uh, initiatives that we've put together and uh, really pleased uh, leaving the uh, presidency on a strong note. Um, so let's talk about the university and kind of where it where it sits at this point in the city. I think that's a really important part of what UDM is. It's not just an academic institution. It's part of the city. It's part of a neighborhood. Uh, that's changed an awful lot over the 11 years you've been here. Yeah, it has. And when I think about it, I think about the fact that the origin of University of Detroit started uh, 145 years ago in 1877 and Mercy College of of Detroit started in 1941. So you have two institutions that have been in the city uh, for a very, very long time and making sure that the neighborhoods uh, are very, very closely associated with the university is extremely important. People talk a lot about town and gown relationships, and sometimes uh, it's not as strong. I feel very, very strongly about the fact that through our seven colleges uh, in the university, that we're all engaged, whether it's a law school, a dental school, a school of architecture, liberal arts and education. And that's the way it should always be. Um, And so we've really spent a lot of time focusing in on those initiatives. When I started, I did not know how that was uh, going to come about, but I had success at both Gannon and also my days at Howard University and Xavier University in New Orleans. And so uh, we've had uh, great success because of the support that we've gotten from philanthropic organizations like the uh, 
like the Fukreski Foundation in particular, but also because our alumni have really rallied, uh, not just in terms of their uh, contributions to the university financially, but because many of them from 50, 60 years ago and 70 years ago can say uh, the university was heavily engaged in this McNichols um, neighborhood uh, when they were students and even when they were downtown um, on Jefferson Avenue. Yeah. Um, you are a lifelong educator and somebody who has thought a lot about access to higher ed and expanding that access uh, over over time. You noted in a past column in Bridge, Michigan, that we are not doing well enough in Michigan with uh, higher ed attainment or higher ed access. At UAD Mercy, you've really been focused on expanding those things and, and focused on first-generation college students. Talk about that work and how important it was. Well, sure. More than one-third of our students are first-generation college students, and people are sometimes surprised at that because of the fact that we are a private institution. But three of the four institutions that I've been in have been totally private institutions. Howard University is a little uh, different because it gets support from the federal government, but that support from Howard, which uh, coincidentally started in 1867, just 10 years before this institution, was really devoted to providing educational opportunities for African-American students. And we've worked hard at Michigan has less than 20% of its population between 25 and 64 years of age that have received a bachelor's degree. Uh, we have lots of work there. And many of those individuals did not get a college degree because there are lots of opportunities to work in the manufacturing uh, world and lots of other occupations. But today, many of our young people are looking for those opportunities to get a post-secondary education. And so we have to make it not only affordable, but we also have to get into the schools and make sure that students know that you really do not have to have an option. You have to get some form of post-secondary education. And we have seen a declining number of 18-year-olds who've been graduating from high school. And that's really have been, it's a more of a population decline there as opposed to students not wanting to go to school. So if we're going to build a boundless future as we use as our motto. We have to make sure to be much more aggressive about that. And the majority of the students nationwide who are going to be in college over the next 10 years are going to be students of color. Um, those numbers have consistently uh, increased while the numbers of uh, students who are white have been declining. So uh, it, it, it takes, um, you know, a very, very strong initiative in order to make those happen. And so, if we had 40% of our students, first-generation college students, I'd be very, very happy. Uh, the fact of the matter is that lots of students were there, and we need to make the case for them that college is indeed affordable. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Dr. Antoine Garibaldi. He is the president of the University of Detroit Mercy. He is retiring on Friday from that position. Uh, we're talking about his tenure at the university and what he plans to do uh, once he steps away. Uh, if you have questions for him or comments about the University of Detroit Mercy, a really important higher ed education or higher ed uh, institution here in the city, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media comments there. Uh, Dr. Garibaldi, I want to talk about what happens after Friday. Uh, you've mentioned that you're interested in writing and have gained a lot of experience, of course, as a leader and learned a lot of things that uh, you want to share with the world. Give us a preview. What's, uh, what's next for you? Well, I want to write a book on, uh, from a leadership perspective on how we have been able to uh, turn the university around, uh, and not just this university, but also Gannon University, where I was president for 10 years. And I could say very much the same at both Howard University and at Xavier University, where I spent 20 years of my professional career. I think there are lots of lessons to be learned, uh, and sometimes they're very, very fundamental. But when you begin to talk about the little things that you do in order to make those things happen, I think it really uh, comes to life and people realize that, okay, it just didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of time. Um, there are many people in the community who know that uh, I did hear what I've done in other places, which is I started going to all the high schools. I started meeting the principals, the counselors. Well, I'm an educator, 
by profession. And so spent some time in elementary school, even ran an alternative high school for the Urban League in St. Paul, Minnesota for students who were suspended and expelled from students and students who were uh, who were who were not going to school. So it's a very easy conversation that I have with them. And I I attribute a lot of our success sometimes to our reconnecting with principals and also counselors in order to uh, them for them to identify prospective students. So I really want to write about that. I want to talk about how Live Six Alliance uh, came to be. And mm -hmm. I said a little bit about that a few uh, weeks ago when uh, Rip Rapson came and spoke at my celebration dinner at the university. But it was uh, one of those things that just uh, began to develop as I initially started talking about the fact that we needed to make some significant improvements around the neighborhood in order to be able to attract more students and also to bring our alumni back. So that's a that's a four and a half year story um, in before Live Six Alliance was actually created. And I want to talk about some of the uh, pieces of that and how we got many of our businesses and residents in this area to come together and support that and how Kresge Foundation provided a large share of the financial backing in order to make that happen. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I've written bits and pieces of it, so <laughs> I want to put it together in, in a book form yeah. so that others can read it too. Yeah. Okay, uh, Antoine Garibaldi, president of University of Detroit Mercy, congratulations on uh, your upcoming retirement. Uh, this community, of course, is going to miss you in that role, but uh, look forward to seeing what, uh, what's next for you and uh, what impact it has on uh, higher ed and on the city of Detroit. Thanks so much for joining us here. Thank you for all your support, Stephen. Yeah. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to continue discussing the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to obliterate Roe v. Wade. We're going to talk with University of Michigan law professor Richard Primus about what this means in a democratic context. How much legitimacy should we be attaching to what the Supreme Court is doing? And how do we restore more faith, not only in that branch, but also the Democratic branches. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.